Thanks again for uh, being here in, in worship. Um, just again, a, a couple um, things if you walked in late. Uh, in your offering, I'm sorry, in your bulletin, there's an offering envelope. There's a re- one blank envelope, which is usually in there for those who are not members of our church yet um, to give your, your gifts, uh, his tithes and our offerings to the Lord. There's also an envelope with some labels and markings on it. Um, that's for next Sunday. We have a joint worship service. Um, a bilingual worship service, it will be held in our main sanctuary. Okay, so that's going to be next Sunday uh, at 1030. So please, please uh, make note of that and, and be there um, in the main sanctuary. Our senior pastor of our church, uh, Reverend Inky Kim, will be preaching and uh, be translated uh, into English. So um, it's always a special treat as we give our gratitude and thanksgiving to, to God uh, next Sunday together. Um, this is it. This is week 10. We're at the conclusion of our study in, um, in, the, in Paul's letter to the Philippian church. And um, it's been really good and challenging. And um, the Lord has been just really ministering to my heart through um, this letter. And I, I hope and, and pray that it has been the same for you, um, that as you've given yourself, um, given the Lord God an honest hearing of his word, that he has uh, been shaping your soul and and just really molding you and, and challenging you to, to different things as he has with me. But, yeah, we're at the end here. And um, I don't know about you, but back in the days when letters used to be written, um, uh, letters used to be written, it would always be really uh, important uh, how a letter ends, right? So maybe some of y'all write. I don't know if you really write letters these days, but um, uh, let me see if I can. If I could, yeah, I could say this. Um, Olivia's got a, a friend, and she has um, begun this correspondence relationship with this. Uh, she's a girl, has begun this correspondence relationship with this certain fella. And uh, so a lot of times she'll call Olivia and say, hey, 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 read this. What, is this. what does this mean? What is he trying to say when, uh, when, when he says this? And so they're kind of dissecting these things, and they're like, ask, ask, ask DL. I need a guy's perspective on this. And so they're ending this letter. He's like, what does this mean when he says I'll talk to you soon. Does that mean he's going to call me or does that mean we're going to email again soon? What does that mean? And, and why did he write your brother in Christ? What does that mean? Does that mean he doesn't like me? Like he only sees me as a, as a brother and there's no hope. for What, what does this all mean? And, and so she's like dissecting and analyzing and taking this stuff apart. What is What does all this stuff mean? Because how you end a letter um, is really important. It's highly important. And so as we look into how Paul ends this letter, it's actually about 14 verses, and uh, I was telling our, our uh, teachers earlier, if I could, I would have broken this up into about three different sermons, but uh, I can't. And so um, we're going to read uh, Philippians 4, verses 10 through 23. We're going to read um, the last 14 verses and just see what is Paul saying and why is it that the end of this letter is so important uh, to the Philippians and to us. Uh, Philippians 4:10. this is God's word. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. 
For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I'm looking for a gift, but I'm looking for what may be credited to your account. Yeah, I've received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They're a fragrant offering and an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all the saints in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. It's God's word. Uh, You know, Paul was writing. Basically, uh, he's writing as a thank you note to the Philippian church because they gave to him a gift sent through Epaphroditus. You remember Epaphroditus? Um, They sent it through Epaphroditus to Paul. And as he was going, making this hundreds of mile journey to where Paul was in prison, he got sick and almost died. And so Paul's sending Epaphroditus back with this letter saying, hey, thank you for the gift that you gave. Now, as we look into this, two things we're going to point out here. The first thing is the secret to contentment. And then the second thing is the, the power of compassionate giving. Okay. First thing, the secret to contentment. Um, let me start with the other thing. Discontentment drives so much of our culture. This is why um, the, the divorce rate is so high in America and throughout the world, because people are not content with their marriages. It's why people are constantly moving from city to city or from job to job because they're not content with their jobs. And that, you know, that may be not necessarily be a bad thing. Um, it's why we want the newest gadgets or why uh, so many of our, our, our folks want um, to get the newest phones or the newest golf clubs or the newest highest tech computers because we're not content with what we have. It's why commercials are a multi-million dollar business. It's why people, uh, advertisers would pay upwards of billions of dollars for a spot during the Super Bowl because everyone knows that TV shows are only vehicles through which advertisers do their work. So when a show is not getting good ratings, it means that people are not watching their commercials, so these shows get canned. Because advertisers prey upon and play upon our discontentment. They know that we're not content with the kind of clothing that we have. So they say, hey, you can get this better clothing at this other store. Or they think that um, your children's toys are not good enough. So here, here's a better one that's come out. Or um, your dishwashing detergent leaves your uh, glass glasses with streaks on it. But here's a better one. So we're, 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 we're filled with the sense of discontentment and our society is driven by it. It's why governments go into debt. It's why, it's why individuals go into debt. And Paul is saying, you know what? There's a secret to contentment because back in those days, it was no easier to find contentment than it is for us to be content today. See, back in, in those days, contentment was a, was a big deal. And there was a, the prevailing philosophy of the, one of the prevailing philosophies of the time was advocated by a guy named Socrates. You guys remember uh, no Socrates or Socrates, as Bill and Ted's would call him? Socrates was a Stoic philosopher. And the idea of the Stoics, the idea of the Stoics was that we're trying to find contentment no matter what the circumstances in life might be, right? So um, the ultimate virtue to a Stoic in those days was to find complete contentment. That if the worst tragedy happens, that you would still be okay with it, you'd still be uh, content. 
the person closest to you were to pass away, then you would say, okay, everything is fine. Now, Epictetus was a Stoic philosopher, probably one of the most famous ones. And he said, this is, this is how you find contentment. I'll tell you right now. This is the Stoic way to find contentment. Okay, here it is. Start with something small, like a cup. And when it breaks, say, I don't care. Right? So a cup breaks, ah, I don't care. Then he says, move to something a little bit bigger. Move to your pet dog. Right? Your dog, right? or whatever pet it is that you have. Your pet gets sick and he dies. Say, I, I don't care. And he says, move on to, to bigger things. Move on to uh, your neighbor. Your neighbor dies. Just say, I don't care. So that what happens is when it gets to things that really matter, like you, your own health, or someone that you love, when they die or when you get sick, you say, oh, it doesn't, I, don't, I don't care. Ultimately, what the Stoic philosophers are getting us to, th- to think and to say is, I don't care about anything. I don't care. And they're saying that is the ultimate virtue. That's the pinnacle of having made it as a human being. To say, I don't care about anything. Therefore, what happens is regardless of the circumstance, whether you're rich or poor, it does not matter to you. Right? That's what the Stoics are saying. It is a philosophy of detachment of ignorance, of being indifferent to anything that comes our way. And Paul is saying, okay, they've got it right in one sense. Our happiness, our contentment is not defined by our circumstances or by the ups or downs of of things of life. But that's not the way you do it. In fact, we should be the ones who are most engaged with the circumstance of life. We should be the ones who, who, when we see an injustice, we should be the ones who, instead of saying, I don't care, we should be the ones who care the most. We should be the ones who give a rip more than anybody else in the world. He's saying, that's not how you find true contentment. He's saying, let me tell you how. Because I found and I've learned the secret. Okay? We love secrets, don't we? Someone says to you, hey, 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 I've got a secret. Or someone says on their, on their Facebook wall, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. And all of a sudden, someone writes on there, they say, what, what, what? And they're like, just send me a message and I'll tell you. Right? Oh my gosh, I can't. That's the secret. Right? We love secrets. We love the secret passageway. And we love the secret recipe. Oh, my gosh, I know the secret recipe for Pinkberry, and I'll sell it to you, or for Froyo's, and I'll sell it to you. Oh, my goodness, all these, you know, the, the secret hideaway, the secret getaway. Or I know that the, the perfect place is the secret place for you to go on your honeymoon, and no one knows about it yet. We love these secrets. And Paul is saying, you know what? I've learned the secret to finding contentment. And the cool thing he says is not that He's saying, I've learned the secret. In other words, we're not born with this thing. It's something that as we grow in maturity, we can grow in our contentment regardless of the circumstance of life. And Paul, he says it all throughout the letter. He doesn't say it explicitly, but it's plain in, uh, in the context. He's saying, here's the secret to contentment. It's about trusting that God is sovereign over all of the affairs of your life. He's saying to these, these, these Philippians, he's saying, you know what? I know you wanted to give earlier, but you didn't have the opportunity to do so. Saying, even that I understand that whether I have a lot or whether I've got a little, all of that is held under God's sovereign care for me. And if I know in my heart of hearts that God is in control of my life, then I don't need to be discontent. I can find contentment in my, even in the midst of hard circumstances because God is in control of my life. Do we believe this? How content are you this morning with your life? 
Are you, do you believe in your heart of hearts that God has your life under his providential care and that every intention of the heart of God for you is for your good? And do you really believe that? Not, not just mental assent, but do you believe that? When he says, I have learned this secret, it's saying, I'm knowing by experience. I am experiencing this. And sometimes the only way to experience this is in our times of want, in our times of need, in our times when everything has been stripped from us, that we realize that I can still be content. Do we trust that God is good and loving and powerful and wise? Do we really Trust that he has us where he wants us to be in plenty or in want. A few uh, weeks ago, as part of uh, our, our baby's uh, one-year checkup, we had to take her to get uh, blood drawn. So we had to take her to uh, the lab called Request Diagnostics. I forget which one it was. Um, but we took her there, and it was an unusually good morning for Manny. She was really chipper that day and really happy. And so uh, she was smiling, and she, you know, she loves going out. And so uh, when we uh, put her in the car, she was really excited. And then we got out, and we're walking into this, uh, into this um, lab to get her, her, her blood drawn. And she was, like, smiling at people and, and laughing at them. And the, the receptionist who took our appointment, she was all, you know, giddy with them. And then they took us into this waiting room and sitting there with uh, some other people and uh, she's, you know, trying to touch them and, and play with them, these, these like elderly ladies and stuff like that. And then um, the, the nurse comes in and she's like, okay, well, we'll take you back to uh, get blood drawn. And so Manny's in this room filled with like these, these toys to her and she's trying to touch everything. And uh, little does she know uh, what she's about to experience. And so the nurse comes in with her blue scrubs and she's got her uh, gloves on, and Manny thinks this is all pretty cool. She was uh, a different racial ethnic background than we were, and so she's just like thinks it's fascinating. So she's like staring at 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 this lady, and and she's like kind of smiling, and and so this lady says, "Okay, one of you is going to need to hold her on uh, your lap, and then hold her arms down so she doesn't start fighting." And so we thought that Manny would be more happy looking at her mommy's face than my face. So I said, "I'll hold her down." That's not funny. It's just true. So I, I sat Manny down on my lap, and I'm holding her, and Manny's still kind of, you know, she's still kind of having fun, and, and um, Olivia's really kind of, like, concerned. She's like, oh, you know, the pain that my baby's going to go through. And, and so the, the lady takes out her alcohol pet thing, and she takes the rubber thing, and she ties it, and Manny's still, and then all of a sudden, she, the, the needle comes out, and she realized, hold on a second. Like, this is, uh, I don't think this is going to be, I don't think this is going to be very good. And so I'm holding her down, and she sees the, uh, the needle, and then she starts flipping out, and she's going crazy. She starts screaming, and she's like, no, no. She doesn't say no. She's like, ah. And then they put it in her to try and draw blood, and she has absolutely lost it. And she's going crazy, and she's crying the kind of cry that's so hard that no noise comes out. Right? She can't even get her breath, and and she's like, but the doctor can't, the nurse can't get blood to come out. And so she's like, keeps on poking it. And, and so we're like, okay, it's not going to happen. So she pulls it out and she's like, okay, I'm going to leave the room. And so she leaves and Manny is going crazy. And so she, uh, she, she goes to mom, she goes to Olivia and Olivia is comforting her. And she's like, okay, you know, doing everything that she can. And five minutes, 10 minutes, she's holding her. She's comforting her. Nurse says, we couldn't get any blood. So we're going to have to try again. And so we're like, just give us some time. And so here's Manny. She's calming down, calming down. Say, Manny, come to daddy. She comes to daddy. And then this lady walks back in. And she's like, oh, no, they're going to do it again. And she just loses it. She starts going crazy. And in her mind, and I don't think she's developed enough to think this way, but, but probably there's part of her that wonders, 
Why, why is mom and dad letting this happen to me? Are they not strong enough to fight off this lady who's causing me so much pain? Do they not love me enough to rescue me from the pain that's being, being inflicted to me, not once but twice? Are they not smart enough to find out a way to get me out of this mess? Do they not care enough about me? Of course, Manny is too young to understand that every intention of our heart is for her good and that she needs this in order for her to be healthy. But she doesn't see that. She doesn't understand that. And as she grows and as she matures, maybe slowly she'll begin to understand this. But she'll begin to understand that every desire of our heart is for her good and is for her to grow and to be healthy and that we love her more than she'll ever know. That there is wisdom in this. That, yeah, we can physically remove this nurse from her, but that wouldn't be the best thing for her. And as Manny grows, she's going to begin to learn. As she matures, she's going to begin to understand. And she can sit tight knowing that even though this hurts, even though this hurts, I can be content in knowing that mom and dad are not against me, but that all of this is held under their care as well. And Paul says, as we grow and as we mature, we will begin to realize that God's desire for you and for me is for our good. It's not to harm us. It's not to hurt us. Sometimes he's not safe, as C.S. Lewis says, but he's always good. Sometimes he takes us to places that are difficult and that are, are, are hard, but that everything about him is good and good for us, that we are becoming more and more into the image and likeness of his son, Jesus Christ. That is the desire of the heart of the Father. And when we begin to realize his sovereign and providential control over our lives, whether we have a lot or we've got a little, whether we are well-fed or hungry, if we can rest and know that he is for us and that his care is over us and that he is sovereign in the good times and the hard times, then we can find contentment in him. See, that's why Paul says in verse 13, this famous verse, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. It's not saying that if, if through Christ, that we, we've got a, a pastor here at Harvest and it's not me. He thought when he was little, he could put a cape on his back and jump off his roof and fly, right? It's not saying that if I believe in Christ with Christ, I can fly. Or with Christ, I can, I can lift up a, a five-ton box of bricks or whatever. It's not saying that. And when we read it in context, in context, he's saying no matter what we go through, we can find contentment because of Christ who gives us the strength, who fills us with the strength in order to find our contentment in him. He's saying we can learn this as well, learning to be content. That's the first thing that Paul shows us as he concludes this letter is that there's a secret to contentment that we can find when we trust in the providential care of God over our lives. The second thing that we see The second thing that we see in the last, actually, I won't say last because you'll think that we're almost done. We're only halfway. So the second thing that we see then is the power of compassionate giving. Paul says in verse 10, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you've renewed your concern for me. Remember in the first part, Paul, basically what Paul's saying, yeah, you gave to me, but that's not the reason I was content. That's not the reason I rejoice. It's not because you gave me more and I needed it. Saying my contentment was found in something other than that. But then at the same time, he's writing this thank you, ooh, thank you letter in order to say, hey, you know what? I'm grateful for the gift that you gave. And what drives him to rejoice 
was a couple things. It's not because of the gift in and of itself, but it says in verse 10, because you have renewed your concern for me. Paul's saying the motivation behind your gift that you gave to me, I understand the motivation was not out of a sense of obligation, but it was out of a sense of compassion and concern and love and partnership and friendship for me. Saying that's what drove your concern. That's what motivated it. It wasn't just something that your hands did. It was something that your heart did. The power is not in giving per se, but it's in the power of a heartfelt, compassionate kind of giving. It says, you have renewed your concern for me. In fact, he says in, in, in the next verse, in that same verse, he says, you had been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. Isn't this the opposite of how many of us live life? We have a lot of opportunities to show concern to people, but we don't because we, quite frankly, don't have the concern or the compassion for them. Paul's saying you had all of that compassion, you had all of that concern, but maybe you didn't have my address or you didn't have someone who was willing to take it to me. You had the concern, but you didn't have the opportunity. And so for that reason, my heart is glad and I rejoice because you've renewed your concern for me. You've demonstrated your concern for me. And that's what touches my heart. When we give, a gift that comes from the heart will touch the heart of the one to whom we give. But a gift given simply out of our bank account will merely touch the bank account of the person in need. You see, there's a power in heartfelt, compassionate giving that Paul recognizes, that Paul understands. And that's the reason he's commending. That's the reason he's thanking the Philippian church. But he goes on. He says, you know what? This was a pattern of your living from the early day. Verse 14. In the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel. When I set out from Macedonia. Then he says in verse 16, for even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Well, what's interesting is that from the very beginning, when they first became became believers, from the earliest acquaintance with the gospel, he says, you are partners with me in the giving. Here's what he's saying. Here's what he's saying. And it's something that we've got to grasp. So it doesn't matter if you're a sixth grade believer a 10th grade believer, a 50-year-old believer, it doesn't matter how old you are or how long you've been doing this Christian thing. Saying giving to the work of the Lord, giving to those in need is the essential building block of our spirituality. It says from your first and earliest acquaintance with the gospel, you begin to give to the work of the Lord. He says, we grow in our maturity as demonstrated in our growth, in our giving. But he's saying this is at the very earliest day. And the interesting thing, he says, from even when I was in Thessalonica, even when I was working with another church and they were the ones who should have supported me, it was you who were supporting me. It was you who were doing that. Even though the, the church in Philippi was a lot poorer than the rest of the churches in Macedonia. And even out of your poverty, you gave. You've ever gone on a mission trip before and you sent out letters to people or you, you let people know hey, I'm going on a mission trip and then you received a gift from somebody and you knew that that person is not financially well off. You knew that that person didn't have a lot, that they were struggling to maybe make their own ends meet. And yet they gave to you a gift. And when you opened up the envelope, you saw that this check was for an amount that they had no business giving. 
and your heart was that moved by it. You realize this person didn't have that much to give anyway. I know that they're having a hard time putting food on their plate. I know they're having a hard time keeping their power bill on, and yet they gave this freely and this generously. Paul says, look, here it is. I was, I was amply supplied. In verse 18, you have, I've received full payment and even more. I'm amply supplied. This word of, of full payment here, what he's basically saying, it's a receipt that's given to people. Like full payment has been given. And he says, this was credited to your account. This is ultimately, here's the reason Paul was so grateful for the gift that the Philippians gave. Not because he had received, but because he knew that by their giving, God was going to take care of all of their needs as well. It says, in, in, in giving to God, he says, I'm looking for what may be credited to your account. He's saying, this has been given to the bank of heaven. Anytime we give to the work of the gospel, it's not a gift to an organization or to a person or to a church. He's saying, this is directly going uh, to God himself. And when he talks about the, the, this, um, this account being set up, credited to your account, he's saying this is accruing interest at an unbelievable rate as you give to the work of the gospel, as you give to the work of ministry. In those days, in, in, in the ways that friendships were set up, well, the way that it would be is that some, one person would give, the other person would receive, and then it would set up this reciprocal kind of relationship. The Philippians give to Paul. Paul would give to the Philippians. Philippians would give back to Paul. Paul would give back to the Philippians. But here's the problem. Paul's in jail. And he's facing what he anticipates could be a death sentence. And so he says, you have given freely to me. And though we've opened up this kind of account, I can't give back to you. But he says in verse 19, says, my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. So even though you gave to me more directly, what happened was that you were giving to God. You're giving to God. He says it was a fragrant offering. This is the language of worship here. At the Philippians, in giving to Paul and to the work of Paul's gospel ministry, they were giving to God himself, and God would not fail to provide for them according to his glorious riches. Here's what it does. Here's what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say, my God will meet all your needs out of his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. He says, according to his glorious riches. What's the difference? In our, our Middle East cell church, okay, that's our uh, cell church comprised of single adults. We have one guy. Uh, his name is Vincent. Right? Vincent Yap is his name. Very interesting character, right? He's actually here today. Vincent, his dream, he wants to be a millionaire so that he can give his wealth away. That's his dream. And so imagine that one day Vincent achieves his dream, becomes a millionaire. And he says, you know what? I want to give to the work of the gospel. I want to supply for other people. I want to supply for the ministry to go forth. If he were to give out of his riches, out of his millions, then it would be very natural for him to say, well, out of my million dollars, I'll write a check. And he writes a check and he gives it to Pastor Albert or he gives it to, uh, to Joshua. And he says, here is my support of your ministry. And you look at the check and it's $5. Like $5? That ain't not, well... He gave out of his riches. That makes sense. It doesn't say how much he's giving, but out of his, out of his million dollars, he's giving five. 
That's not what Paul says. He doesn't say God has all this and he's going to give you out of that storehouse. He's saying he's giving according to all that he has. So when Vincent gives according to his millions of dollars, he's giving in a measure proportionate to what he's got. When we give according to our $100,000 salary, or you give according to your, not that I have a $100,000 salary, but when someone gives according to their $100,000 salary, or someone gives according to their million-dollar salary, their giving is proportionate. It is commensurate with what they have. And what Paul is saying is when we give out of genuine compassion and concern for other people, when we give in that way, then according to God's glorious riches, he will supply all of your needs. You see, we shovel out our money for the sake of the gospel. God shovels back to us, but his shovel is infinitely bigger than ours. Then again, I, I have to be careful to let you know, I'm not talking about if you believe in Christ and you give, then you'll be healthy and wealthy and wise. It's not talking about that kind of a prosperity gospel. It's talking about a, 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 that's driven not by a desire to get rich. I give so that I might get rich. I give out of a concern, out of a gospel-driven love for the ministry and for the gospel and for the sake of those whom I'm, 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 in, I'm in partnership with. And out of love for them, I give and we give and you give. And the thing is, as we give freely, God continues to pour into our lives as well. The question is, what's our motivation? Is that I'm giving to get? Or is that I'm giving to give and out of God's riches, according to his riches, he supplies us. Saying, look, there is a power. There is a power and there's a beauty. Paul's heart was so completely touched that he rejoiced, not for the sake, not because I've got more money, but because their account is being credited, because the gospel is going forth. You remember in, in Philippians 1, 12 and 13, Paul says, you know what? I'm here, I'm in jail. And you might think that with all this stuff happening to me, people talking trash about me, you might think that the gospel has been hindered here. And in fact, the gospel is going forth and it's going forth amongst the palace guard. What in the world does that mean? Let me, let me tell you the power of compassion-driven giving. Paul ends this letter. He says, to God be glory. He ends with this doxology and then he ends with final greetings. This greeting in itself could be a sermon in and of itself. He says, greet all the saints. And not just like, hey, tell everyone I said hello. Sometimes when I see people who have... Um, uh, who have uh, moved away from harvest and are doing things in other places, sometimes they'll say, hey, tell everyone I said hi. Like, what does that really mean? Like, I'm going to go to everyone and say, hey, you know what? Such and such said hi to you. So I say, okay, but, you know, I, I'm not going to really say that. But if you were to say tell and these specific people, each person at harvest hi, first of all, I wouldn't be able to do that. But it would mean a little bit more than, hey, tell everyone I said hi. Tell each person I said hi. Tell everyone in the cell church I said hi versus tell each person in the cell church. I said, there's a, a night and day difference. Paul is saying, greet all the saints. He's saying, treat each person with equal value. The richer, the poorer, the haves, the haves not. Say, send our love to each and every single one of them. We could go on and on. But verse 22, all the saints, all the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. Now, that last statement is huge. And this is how he ends this letter. Because this is what he's been longing to say from the very beginning. This is what he's been longing to say. But like the usual suspects and like the village and like all the good M. Night Shyamalan movies, he waits until the end to bring out the best part. What in the world does this mean? 
It says, in the days that Paul was writing, right, in this time, about 60, 70 A.D., uh, 30, 40 years after Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. In that time, uh, under the, uh, the reign of the Roman Empire, the Philippian church was being persecuted. And the greatest persecutor of the Christian church in those days uh, were the Roman emperors. Now, there was an emperor at this time that Paul was writing. He was the last of the Caesars. His name was Nero Claudius, Caesar Augustus Germanicus. With a name like that, it's no wonder that he would shorten his name to just Nero. In those days, Nero was the one who was persecuting the church. He was the one trying to stomp out all of these Christians. He was the one who was watching over Paul as he was in jail. And yet Paul is saying, all the saints send you greetings, especially those in the household of Nero. Here's what he's saying. You know that gift that you gave for the gospel to go forth? You thought it was just a gift taking care of my needs, but let me tell you something. Let me tell you how powerful that gift was. Yeah, everyone needs compassion, the kindness of a Savior, even especially those in Nero's household. All of the servants in Caesar's palace who were treated awfully in the midst of this corrupt palace of this corrupt Caesar, saying even under the nose of the most ardent opponent of Christianity, even in that palace... The gospel is going forth, and those people want you to know that they're in partnership with you. Those people want you to know that they care about you. Those people want you to know that they send their greetings to you also, and that you're in partnership with them. Paul is saying, look, you, don't, you have no idea how powerful the gifts that you offer to your missionaries can be. You have no idea that your sixth, sixth grader, you might get $5 allowance. You set aside 50 cents of that as your one-tenth, your tithe to God. You give that 50 cents to somebody. You have no idea how far-reaching that is. You know, the, the legends tell us, actually a, a historian 200 years after Nero lived, said that Nero's wife gave her life and became a Christian, giving her life for this gospel that was going forth through the chains of this prisoner, Paul. And Paul is saying, look, these are the people whose lives are being changed because of your giving. As you give to your missionary in your cell churches, it's not just, oh, just a couple bucks here and there, but when your heart is in it, when your heart is filled with concern and compassion for the move of the gospel amongst the nations in places like Egypt, in places like Thailand, wherever your people go, as you give to your missionaries, as you give to your short-termers as they go to the Dominican Republic, to Ecuador, you have no idea the kind of people that God is going to use as your heart-driven offering touches the hearts of those who receive and the gospel goes forth. There's a power. You, you want to know what ties all these things together? It's by believing in the power of the gospel. It's by meditating and thinking upon the wonder of the gospel. What is the secret to contentment? It's by looking at the cross and realizing that in the cross, we see that God is not only good, he's not only powerful, he's not only wise, but he's loving. That at the cross, in, those, in that moment where we look at the cross and we see that he's not good, he's not loving, he's not powerful, he's not wise. Why would he let his, his Messiah die on the cross like that? We begin to see that God is really in control and we can, take, we can find contentment when we believe in the work of the gospel for us. That's where we find contentment. 
We realize that he's good, caring, wise, loving, and he's that to us. How is it that we can, we can give of ourselves, we can let our hearts be touched, so that in compassion we give freely to the work of the gospel? Because we realize that, that the gospel has met us and has changed us, and that as freely as we have received, now freely we can give, because we know that no matter how much we give to the work of God, he continues to give into us and gives us a never-ending supply of resources by which we can do his work. What is it that's worth giving our lives to? We spend all of our money on so many different things. He says, here's the one thing that will continue to earn you a return. We give to the work of the gospel. It says, even in Caesar's household, those saints are sending you greetings. Whoever you are, it starts, it, it starts where we are now. As a sixth grader, a seventh grader, an eighth grader, saying, I believe that God can use the little that I have because my heart is filled with joy as I give my heart is filled with compassion as I give because there are fifth graders and sixth graders and seventh graders in places like North Korea, in places like China, in places like Japan, who are putting their heads down on their beds tonight and have no idea that if they were to die, they wouldn't be in heaven with their maker. And filled with compassion, we begin to give and we begin to envision what God can do. And they're not they, they didn't give because of guilt. They didn't give because of all oh, this is an obligation. They gave because there was compassion in their hearts. And as they gave to the work of the Lord, here in this letter, they're beginning to realize a glimpse of how powerful that giving could be. I pray that we would do the same and that it would inspire us to be driven by the gospel, to give freely to the work of the Lord. Let's pray. Let's, uh, let's pray to the Lord God as we respond to his word. Maybe we've been feeling a lack of contentment in our lives. We feel like God is maybe uh, taking a nap on us and he's not there for us right now. He's not aware of what's going on in our lives. And so we try and take matters into our own hand to try and build contentment for ourselves. If that's us, let's turn our eyes upwards to trust in Christ again, faith in Christ, to believe in Christ again. Maybe for others of us, we've got a glimpse of what could be. We begin to give of ourselves. If instead of, instead of asking God to supply our needs so that we might be able to be comforted for ourselves, that we would ask God to supply so that we could give freely. God always supplies our needs, but he will not always supply for our greed. But as we begin to give, to begin to open up our hearts. There's a power in compassion-driven giving, giving. Let's ask the Lord, God, what do you want me to do in light of this? Are there people in my life? Are there missionaries? Are there nations of the world that I want to give the little that I have to so that they might know the power of the gospel? Let's take a moment to respond to his word in prayer, just praying and responding. And if you want to pray out loud, you can do that. If you want to Pray quietly to yourself. You can do that. But let's really, for the next minute or so, let's really pray and respond to him and ask the Lord God that he would challenge us to live a life worthy of the gospel, even in this manner. Let's pray in response for a couple moments, and then we'll close this part of our time and continue in worship.
But Father in heaven, we thank you that you have made it possible for us to learn the secret of contentment by lifting our eyes to put our faith and our hope and our trust in an altogether good and lovely God whose desire for his people is for our good that we might become more like Christ. Help us to believe that and to trust in you, to be content with whatever our lot, that we would also say it as well with our soul and that you would help those of us in here who maybe have been convicted in the area of the resources that you've blessed us with. Lord God, that you would help us to be faithful stewards of what you have entrusted to us. God, what we think we own, our money, our finances, our resources is really on loan to us from you. Pray that you'd help us to invest in the things that matter, to invest in the things that last, to invest in the things that are eternal, to invest in the things that would give us joy and reward that accrues an interest far greater than anything else in this life. We thank you. We love you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.